Well, greetings, saints. What a joy it is to be with you here this morning. I was talking with the brothers earlier. It's just a, quite the contrast from yesterday, just such darkness, and then walk into the, 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 the house of the Lord and just the light and the presence of you saints, and what a joy. A joy it is to be here worshiping our God, to be uh, amongst people who love his name, who cherish his gospel, who love him. And so... Thank you, saints. I appreciate you, and I love you, and I adore you all. And so it is a joy today to be with our Lord. So we continue this morning our look through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves in chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. And so up to this point, the church has been exploding in size. We see thousands upon thousands of people joining the church, and there's many people who would argue, but at this point, the church is probably close to 10,000 people. So there's quite a few uh, saints, quite a few uh, disciples gathering. So from Pentecost to now, the gospel has been going forth all throughout Jerusalem. And we're seeing these amazing results as these spirit-filled apostles proclaim with boldness and and authority that the Christ who those people had killed is the Christ, is the Messiah. And so the apostles are preaching to these great crowds. They're they're getting arrested. They're brought before these high councils of the, the religious leaders. And they're testifying to what their mission was. They're testifying to who Christ is. We see the church is gathering. And they're doing so daily. And they're doing so around the, the ministry of the word from the apostles. They're breaking bread with one another. They're, they're selling their possessions. They're seeing that each need is met as it, as it, as it arises. And so we see all this beauty of the early church. We see all this wonder going on here. And, and I, I, I must admit, saints, it's, it's easy to sometimes begin to idolize the early church as being, oh, that's the perfect work of God. We must do everything we can to get back to this. And we get back, to, we get this idea going through our head that this early church, they were really doing it right. We even see some today attempt to base their entire ecclesiology off the first and second century churches and the church fathers. But I think it's important, and we have to be wise, to remember that the early church was not so perfect. It was not so pretty as we like to imagine. And before we find ourselves enveloped in a total romanticization of the early church, we must remember this one point. It's utmost importance. The early church still had sinners. And the early church was without the whole counsel of God. The early church didn't have, uh, these churches in Acts, they didn't have 1 Timothy that explained qualifications for elders. They didn't have Titus that explained qualifications for deacons. And so what we have here is this, this uh, organism that's being created, that's being formed by the Spirit of God, but it's, it's not yet perfected. It's not yet fully set out whose role is what and, and what's exactly going on. It's just this explosion of the gospel. People are excited. They have the joy of the Lord with them, and they're gathering, and, and, and the, things are beginning to work themselves out. And so we see an instance of that here in our verses for this morning. So we glean and we treasure these accounts of the early church, but we also recognize it is a growing organism. It's in the earliest stages of development. And again, this is not an affront against the work of the Spirit. We rejoice that, look at the gospel going forth, the Spirit emboldening these apostles, that people are coming to faith. This Jerusalem where the hardened hearts that screamed out, crucify him, these same men in those crowds are now getting saved by the gospel. So we rejoice in that movement of the Spirit that we see taking place, but we also recognize this is the early stage. And so we see in this passage this morning, the church is not without its complaints and without its issues. So now let's read God's word. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint came by the Hellenists, arose uh, against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give, give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, 
a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come now to the preaching of your word, and I pray that uh, Christ would increase as I decrease. I pray that if there be any folly come from my mouth, that it would fall on deaf ears. Lord, I lift this congregation, this flock to you, that they would be edified as your word goes forth, not returning void. Lord, would you convict us where we need conviction? Lord, would you remind us and, and, and ensure us of the hope and joy that is in Christ? If we are lacking that this morning, God, I thank you so much for these saints. What a, a blessed joy it is to dwell in the house of the Lord. So, God, we ask that you would go forth proclaiming this message through me, your servant, that you would be most glorified and honored in all these things. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so, for this morning, I want us to approach this section with four points to look at. We have four focus points. Uh, the first one being recognizing biblical complaints. Recognizing biblical complaints. Second being defining biblical offices and callings. The third is the church's election of officers. And fourth and finally, the outcome of biblical church order. So what we're aiming for in these four points is to answer this question, how do we as the body of Christ recognize and minister to the needs of the body. We all have our own lives, we all have our own stories, our own things that come up, our own issues, our own trials. And so God, by His Word, has called us as the body to recognize those things in the church and to then take care of the body with, from within. And so we begin here in verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Again, we get to our first point. Luke makes that note that the growth of the church is continuing. And with anything that's exploding and becoming great and it's gained a number of people with rapid growth, anything in a fallen world with rapid growth is going to have oversight. Things are going to get neglected. There are certain areas that will get overseen. There are issues that will arise that are just go by the wayside and not necessarily for ill intent, but just because things get overseen when you have such a large gathering. And so we see among the disciples these two distinct groups. You have the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Both groups would have been ethnically Jewish. The distinction comes in their language. The Hebrews were Aramaic-speaking, and the Hellenists were those Jews who were part of the diaspora or the dispersion. They were those that were driven out of their homeland and had adopted the Greek language, and some of them had adopted the Greek customs. And so the distinction here is the Hebrews and the Hellenists, the Hellenists having that Greek influence and the Hebrews sticking to the Aramaic and Hebraic roots. And so we see in the early, uh, early church this distinction amongst the recently converted Jews. And again, like I said, whether it's intentional or not, the Hellenist widows are being neglected. And so the text doesn't say, oh, the Hebrews conspired against them and you know, made sure they didn't get fed. We don't, we don't get that in the text. But what we do get is there is an issue that has arose. And so we come to our first point for this morning, recognizing biblical complaints. Recognizing biblical complaints. And so it is in this fallen world that we need not to look far to find some sort of complaint. You don't have to look far to see someone complaining about something. And oftentimes we only need to look in our own mirror. If we uh, examine the Old Testament account of Exodus, it seems as if every other verse ends with, and the people grumbled amongst themselves. So now we have this question that lies before us. Is there biblical grounds for complaint? I believe it's important for us to approach this in the negative and in the positive, or what isn't and what is a biblical complaint. 
I believe with a little sanctified imagination, we can come up with a wide range of complaints that might have arisen in the early church. Again, these might seem tongue-in-cheek, but my hope is that what they do is revealed to us is that we can be pretty petty sometimes. So while this is sanctified imagination, do hear now some potential early church complaints. Went to their home for teaching, and their choice of incense that they were burning was very nauseating. I can't believe they didn't have enough rugs for everyone to sit on as we went and heard the apostles' teaching. Why did the apostles have to teach for so long? Don't they know that we are hungry? Those Hellenistic Jews aren't really Jews. They don't even speak Aramaic. Those Hebrews, they think they have the superior understanding because the scriptures were written in Hebrew. We have the Greek translation. So these early church complaints that I have just theorized, they seem rather petty, but now comes the ouch part because we must examine ourselves and ask the question, who are you in those examples? Are you the one to complain when someone opens their home to you and there's something that is not to your satisfaction? Are you the one who watches the time wondering when this sermon will end? Are you the one who will stare down at other Christians because they don't look like you? They don't walk like you. They don't talk like you. And finally, are you the one who will sit on a seat of superiority because your theology is proper? It only takes a moment of examination, dear saints, to realize that we have so many petty complaints that have nothing to do with the edification of the body. In fact, in all of those, in fact, in all of those examples, not a single one of them leads to unity, to love, to peace, to edification. Not a one of them, saints. And how often do we complain and we murmur and we grumble about the most menial of things? And how often has that led to anything but division amongst the body? Division amongst those whom you would call brother or sister. This sin is this one that is as old as creation. It is found in the garden. Eve is tempted with the fruit. The serpent, he does convince her of many things, but one of them is being that she was lacking by not having the fruit. If we have any lesson from this at all, it is this. Life is not always better when we have everything our way. In fact, oftentimes it is worse. It is worse for us to always get every single little thing our way. It is the sin of pride, brothers and sisters. It is the sin of, it must be how I want it. And so if we want to approach this understanding of biblical complaining, we must go to the Word of God. That is the guide for our complaints. It is the standard. It is our only sure foundation. It is there that we will find the way that leads to mercy and sanctification. It is there that we will find what it is to have a biblical complaint. And so we see here the Hellenists have made this complaint that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution, which would have most likely been a food giving out. And so these widows are lacking. They're needing food. They rely on the church and those around them to supply their needs. And the Hellenistic men see this need and they bring it before the widows. And they say our widows are being neglected. And so what is the biblical warrant? What is the grounds for their complaint? Is there any grounds for their complaint? Are these Hellenists just being so ridiculous, saying, well, the women aren't getting their food, the widows aren't receiving what they need. But there is biblical warrant for this claim. They need only look to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. It says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Isaiah instructs us there that for us to learn to do good, for us to seek justice, to bring justice, is to plead the widow's cause. Don't let the widow's cause fall on deaf ears. 
Don't let their neglect go unseen. Don't let them fall by the wayside. Plead the widow's cause. Those are those who are in need. And it also mentions there the fatherless. This would be orphans. And so it's apparent that the Hellenists, having known the scriptures, were not going to stand by quietly when their widows were being neglected. They made sure that the apostles were aware of the widow's cause and the need for mercy. So they're pulling from the scriptures here. They're not being rambunctious and just going about flippantly saying things and, oh, this person needs that and this and another thing. They're doing what Isaiah has commanded, plead the widow's cause. These widows were in neglect. They corrected oppression, as Isaiah says, by doing so. They saw an injustice. They saw what God's word had commanded. They saw the neglect, whether, again, I said whether it's ill or not. They saw the need, and they pled the cause before those who could do something about it. And the matter has begun to be taken care of. Deuteronomy also gives us a deeper insight into the care for the widow. Deuteronomy 24, verse 17 and 19, it says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And so there's a a direct example given here in Deuteronomy of taking care of the widows. It's this commandment to consider the whole of your harvest, not your own but rather a part of it is to take care of orphans and to take care of widows. This theme is constant throughout the scriptures to take care of orphans and widows. So my question this morning is, when we look at our harvest that the Lord has planted and provided for us, when we consider that which we reap and take into our household, are we considering the needs and the mercies of those within the body? Because the Deuteronomy is very plain there for us. Consider your harvest. Consider your grain silos, dear saints, this morning. Consider that sheaf that you saw as being left in the field and not wanting to be left in the field, but to go back and grab it for yourself. Consider what falls by the wayside. Consider the the things that aren't of necessity. I preach this to myself first. To consider the harvest and to consider the widow and the fatherless. James describes this ministry of uh, taking care of the orphans and the widows as a religion that is true and undefiled. Do we not desire such things, beloved, to have our religion be true and undefiled? To be holy as He is holy. So the commandment there in Deuteronomy is don't forget the neglected during the times of your harvest. And secondly, we see there also is don't forget that you too were once enslaved in Egypt. Don't forget that you too once wandered the wilderness and required of the Lord's provision of manna. Dear saints, if we truly understand and grasp the concept that everything that we have is of God, then we'll understand that we are wandering in the wilderness seeking manna. Everything that we have is a gift from God. All of His provisions, all of the harvest that we reap is His. He has been so kind to let us keep it. But he's also instructed us in how to use it. We see the parallels found out throughout the New Testament and here as well in Acts of taking care of the widow, taking care of the orphan. And we who have been given so much in Christ should be the people with the least amount of complaints. Again, I, I use this phrase almost... It seems as if every time I preach, but I think it's important because it's so quick to forget that 
Everything you have is grace. Your breath, your heartbeat, your home, your money, your food, all of it is a gift of God. So how could we neglect the orphans and the widows? How often do we consider our finances our own? Complain that we don't have enough and yet we never offer what we do have to others. So this consistent theme found throughout the scriptures, take care of those who, by God's divine providence, do not have as much as you. If we were to step outside for just a second and maybe consider that the reason why some of us have more than others is that we might give what we have in excess to those who don't have as much. That maybe when Paul speaks of uh, in Ephesians 2 of us being his workmanship created for good works, that maybe those are some of the works that we need to walk in. The mercy ministry, the seeking of the, the needs of the, the body. So it's no small deed to help those in need. In fact, in the grand scheme of things, in God's providence, that is us walking in his workmanship. Walking in the deeds created bef- uh, for us before all of things were created. And so we see here the Hellenists bring forth this complaint. They bring it forth to the apostles. They bring forth a complaint that's grounded in Scripture. They bring something forth that the apostles would recognize in Isaiah and Deuteronomy and throughout the Old Testament. And so we see it as a proper biblical complaint. They have the grounds for bringing forth this complaint. It wasn't a trivial matter, but one that had scriptural warrant. Again, I remind us, our complaining must have scriptural warrant. And it must lead to mercy. It must lead to sanctification. And above all things, it must lead to God's glory. We cannot complain for the sake of complaining. And so we'd be wise to check these categories before we complain, before we grumble Is what I'm bringing forth leading to edification? Is what I'm bringing forth leading to unity? Is it leading to mercy, to grace, to sanctification? Or is it just a personal preference that I have that's not being met? So we go now to verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Come now to our second point for this morning, defining biblical offices and callings. Defining biblical offices and callings. So the Hellenists have this complaint, and they bring it before the apostles, and so they Apostles then gather disciples together to now mediate this neglect of the widows. And it's in this moment that we get that insight into church history, into the early church, this beautiful moment of reconciliation within the body. The apostles don't just start throwing hammers and seeking out who forgot the widows. They don't start you know, putting fi- calling fire down on everyone. They say, hey, let's gather everyone together. Let's make the complaint known to everyone and let's come to a solution. Let's mediate the neglect that the widows experience that we might have unity in the complaint instead of disunity in the complaint. Because the enemy, our great foe, would love to drive that wedge when we bring forth the complaint in the body in order that it would cause division. And so what we see here is the apostles, with their God-given authority and leadership, they bring the body together that this issue might be brought to the light. A grievance has been brought forth. The leaders address it, and they bring the whole gathering together. I think we have wisdom here to recognize when it comes to complaints that none of them will ever get taken care of correctly if the complaint is only done in gossip and slander. When the complaint is held in the group off to the side and it's not done so in the midst of the body, when the complaints are done in order to allow controversy to arise, 
We must check our own hearts, brethren. We are sinful in that way that we would have controversy over complaints. And so true biblical complaints will be done so in the light and not in the darkness. So the complaint made by the Hellenists, the apostles gather together the disciples and they begin to define the biblical offices. Look at the end of verse 2 there. He says, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In all honesty, I remember being a new believer reading through the book of Acts. And I read that verse and I said, that sounds kind of harsh. It sounds like those apostles are considering the serving of tables as being beneath them. It sounds like they have better things to do than to feed the poor. But in my growth and in sanctification by the grace of God, I've come to understand that what's taking place here is a delegation of offices. The apostles had been called by the Lord Jesus Christ, had dwelt with him for many years, been trained by him, and now, after the Great Commission, have been sent forth to go and to be ministers of the word. And so... To see an issue with that statement is to not recognize how central the ministry of the word is to the growth and health and development of the church. And so this ministry of the word is of highest importance. And if we consider it down to its basic argument, how would we know that we need to take care of the widows if the word were not instructing us first to take care of the widows? Just like Paul says, how would I know sin if the law had not first instructed me? Of what is sin. And so we see here the priority is the word of God. And so when the apostles make this claim, it's not to neglect the widows or say that's below us. It's to say that our job is to preach the word that you, church, might be built up to do what the word has commanded you. If you spent any time evangelizing, you'll have encountered this argument. You need to stop preaching and just go help the homeless. Or why don't you go adopt a baby instead of standing here in front harassing these women entering this clinic? It's this idea of the world saying, you must do good works and keep your mouth shut. It's these very arguments that expose the reason for the apostles' response. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This world is blind to spiritual things, it is emaciated to such things. And so the apostles' understanding is that the greatest need among the peoples is that they would know Christ. That they would be instructed in the grace of the gospel, that they would know the word. That when injustice would arise, they would have grounds for bringing it forth. The greatest issue this world has is they have so many injustices, and yet they have no ground to stand on. What does it matter that someone goes hungry in an atheistic worldview? What does it matter that someone has no home? Where do these rights come from? Where do these things come from? Why does your life even have value? It is the ministry of the Word that teaches us why life has value. It is the ministry of the Word that says, you deserve grace because of what Christ has done. It is the ministry of the Word that says, we must repent and believe. So their statement here is one of spiritual priority, not of neglect of the needs of the body. The apostles, or the twelve, as they are called in this passion, passage, were given divine authority to establish the church. And you go back and make correction. I said they deserve grace. I didn't mean that. I meant they, they, we need grace. So just a correction that, that didn't go from... Yes, okay, thank you. So the apostles of the twelve, as they are called in this passage, were given divine authority to establish the church. There were those who had been commissioned by Christ himself to witness of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. There were those who were given theonostos, God-breathed revelation. So this ministry of the word was of highest priority because it is their obedience to Christ that they don't serve tables. It's their obedience to what God had commanded them of that they're not found at the tables. 
So they are the ones, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that laid the foundations that others will build upon it. That was their job. That was their goal. So their office as apostles was to lay the foundation. Others would come to build upon that. And a part of that foundation being built is the delegation of church order. Part of that foundation is, by God-breathed revelation, defining what a church is to look like. And so we see in verse 3, they tell the disciples, pick out seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and appoint them to this duty. Now in this passage, we don't see them specifically being called deacons, but we see here early in early development of that office. So the word deacon isn't found here, but again, like I said, this is the early development of the office of deacon. And the role of these seven men was to restore the unity and joy of the body. We saw in Acts 2 people gathering in their homes, they're fellowshipping, they're breaking bread, they're sharing with one another. Acts 4, they're selling their possessions. No one has a need. And so the spirit wrought joy is just filled in the early church. It's abounding, but the church grew to such a size that they began to have neglect. And now we have the appointing of these seven to restore that joyous fellowship, to restore that, that little bit of division that had every chance to creep in and drive the wedge. Now these seven men, all right, okay, there's division because these widows are neglected. These seven men will go make sure there's, there's no neglect among the widows anymore. And so the apostles offer this solution, and they give these specific qualifications for the office. An office is one of great importance. The deacons oversee the physical needs of the people and the temporal needs of the church. Their responsibility is service-oriented. They maintain the day-to-day needs of the body, freeing up time for the teachers and preachers to study and pray and prepare for their duties. It is the deacon that by acts of service maintains the physical joy of the congregation by seeing that all the needs are met, that they may receive the spiritual joy given by the teacher. I think we all need this encouragement. We all need this help. That's why God has ordained such an office. I know that some of us, myself included, we've shown up to church on Sunday morning and we have in the back of our minds a need that needs to be met. We have a a financial burden or we have a physical burden. We're sick. There's something going on. and We're not able to fully receive that which God has given to us through the preaching of the Word because in the back of our minds is this burden. So the deacon, in restoring joy and fellowship and unity, sees those needs and finds a way that the body can come around and restore that joy so that the spiritual needs are met through the preaching of the Word. The deacon delegates the benevolence, prays for the sick and needy. He pleads the widow's cause. He delegates the needs to the rest of the flock that they too may join in the joy of service to one another. These seven men obviously weren't going to oversee this 10,000-something people. They were to be the leaders to then delegate to other people. It's The whole congregation is seeing this taking place. The whole congregation is invited in to see the neglect of the widows that they might help and provide. The seven men are given this office to oversee that. Again, verse 4, the reason is given for the necessity of these seven men. The twelve are to be about the mission and ministry that Christ has called them to. Again, it's obedience to Christ that brings this office about. It's abundantly clear that they seem uh, that the apostles see this complaint and they see that it's valid, and so they give a solution to the people. They see that this is something that needs to be addressed and taken care of, and so they delegate. They delegate out these duties. And they do so in order that they might devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles have been commissioned to that ministry. And they will obey it. But they will also oversee this new office. 
They'll see that there is a biblically defined role. They'll see that nothing gets in the way of their obedience to that, these men, these seven. So the implications of their obedience have been seen throughout the book so far. It's almost every chapter thus far that we've seen, twice in this passage alone, that the number is being added to the church. The apostles' faithfulness to the preaching of the word adds, we see the Spirit adding day through day through day the numbers to the church. I think Romans 10 gives us really this beautiful divine insight into the importance of the ministry of the word. Romans 10, how then will they, cry, how then will they call on him whom they have, been, have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It would have been a great detriment to this early church if the apostles would have ceased the ministry of the word in order to serve the tables. It would have been great detriment to the body. And this transfers over to our current context. All the same, uh, the modern church. The body of believers needs to be aware that the pastor or elder is called to be the minister of the word. That is his calling first and foremost in the church, is to be a minister of the word. And so the spiritual well-being of the body is in their hands. It's in their hands that they will have to give an account for the flock given to them. The elder, as a minister of the word, will stand before God and give an account James says it would be wise not to teach or you'll face stricter judgment. I don't know exactly what that means, but boy, does that put the fear of God in you when you stand before people and, and proclaim His Word? And so we must recognize that this ministry of the Word is of great importance, is why we're here this morning. The 2,000 plus years ago when these apostles went forth, they went forth with the word empowered by the Spirit of God. You're saved this day because the word was preached to you and the Spirit ignited in something inside of you and caused you to be born again. Hebrews 13:17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That verse right there is an ouch for everyone here. And not for just those that have to obey the leaders. It's for those who would lead. So, it would be wise to heed the warning of Hebrews. But with that, I must say, beloved, that since my family has joined you at this body, we have been overwhelmed with your loving kindness. We've been filled with joy at your eagerness to serve one another. It has been a wonderful testimony to the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I must admit to some righteous bragging about you, dear saints, that I cease to tell others of how wonderful our body is, how, how wonderful it is that God brought such unique people together to serve him and to serve one another. And so I thank, I thank our great God and Savior, Savior for each of you. You are such a blessing. What a joy it is to be a part of this congregation. And so that we come to verse 5. And what they, say, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. We come now to our third point, church election of officers. So the apostles, in their wisdom, call upon the church to select seven capable men to fulfill the duties revealed by the neglect of the widows. And so as apostles, they give qualifications for the office, but the selection is done by the body. Selection is done by the church. The qualifications given, they say to the body, you select seven men. So we see here the beauty of spirit-empowered leadership. 
The apostles don't lord their leadership over the church and make every single decision. They allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in the believers. And we see the outcome there at the beginning of verse 5. What they said pleased the whole gathering. The body saw that the apostles had concern over the grievance. They saw that the apostles recognized that this was indeed a neglect. But they also saw that the apostles brought them along in the solution of this problem. It is gentle yet authoritative with giving qualifications. And the result is it led to the joy of everyone there. Everyone was pleased with the result. This is only accomplished, though, dear saints, when we have a right understanding of the church and the roles of its officers. So often division and strife is caused because we do not understand how the church is to function. I personally have seen fallout from a dictatorial pastor. There's this disconnect in the body where the sheep fear speaking to the pastor because everything is... Thus saith the Lord that comes from their mouth. There's fear over expressing concerns because they're worried that there might be some kind of backlash. I've seen that in the body. I've also seen the fallout of churches that are deacon-run. where The board of deacons kind of move the church in whatever way they think should go, and there is no respect for the elder. And so a right and biblical understanding of the church and its offices leads to a joyous congregation as the spirit works in and through it properly roles are defined and we're all on the same page and nothing gets lost in the weeds so to speak i don't know about you but i like for things to be defined i want to know what it is what 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 is the role what is the definition what is the requirement what is the expectation i think as a body we need to understand these things as a church What are the roles? What are the qualifications? What is the expectation from each one? i give you a a live example. You have a duty here this morning, and you have in the past few months, as you're aware, Destiny and myself have been brought forth as candidates for elders, and you have been brought and asked to be an integral part in that selection. Whether you see us fit or not is your duty as a body here. Is your duty as a congregation. And so this passage here is one of the many examples of the congregation recognizing the qualifications of men within the church and bringing them up in such offices. Verse 6, the church selects its seven and brings them before the apostles, and the apostles pray over them. It's of great importance that the apostles would pray over them. As with any assumption of responsibility, the temptation of abuse is ever-present. Anybody who's given any bit of leadership or any bit of authority are, are so quick to be tempted to abuse such things. And so the apostles gather them, and with some sanctified insight, we can see from verse 3 what the prayer might have consisted of, that their reputations would be maintained as they faithfully serve the body, that the Spirit would give them all wisdom and insight to oversee such a tremendous task of potentially thousands of people overseeing their physical needs. And then we see there, after they pray, they lay on the hands. This is a common practice that we see throughout the Scriptures. When something new is being commissioned, they'll lay on the hands. We see uh, this example in uh, Numbers, when the Lord instructs Moses Take Joshua before all the people and lay hands on him. It's to show that before the people, Joshua is being given some authority. And so the apostles would bring these seven men before the entire congregation, all the believers, and they would lay hands to symbolize that these men have been given authority for a specific role and a purpose to work within the body. So laying on of hands is just a, a representation of, of uh, act of giving authority. So the seven are before the people and the twelve lay hands on them, signifying that these men have been commissioned to the mercy ministry. So this problem that arose in verse 1 now finds its resolution 
and the pointing of these seven men. And again, we know how easily a complaint like this could bring division in the church, but the solution was found in recognizing the need, defining the roles, and delegating the men to fix it. So we have now a complaint, definition of roles, and a church-involved solution. So what is the outcome? What takes place after all this happens? We look at our final verse for this morning, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So our final point for this morning, outcome of a biblically ordered church. First one is the word of God increased. The word of God increased. The sanctification and edification of the church was grown by this situation. What could have led to division and a horror story within the body led to sanctification, led to mercy, led to a growing in the understanding of God. As these new believers were given opportunity to recognize neglect in the body, they were given responsibility to choose the seven men, and the apostles were allowed to focus on what it is they were called to, the ministry of the word, and that only transfers to the saints growing in their understanding of the gospel, the gospel continuing to go forth and bear fruit of repentance. Second, we see the numbers of the disciples multiplying. Luke has scattered the summary throughout Acts to, to give testament to the power of the ministry of the word. Their numbers grew. We've seen that so many times so far, just in the first few chapters. Their numbers grew. The Lord added to their numbers. So as the apostles are devoting themselves to the study and prayer and teaching, the word is going forth with power and multiplying the number of the disciples. And the third thing we see in that last verse is that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is something new now. Imagine for a moment the thoughts of the high priests, those that are literally trying to kill this movement. They're conspiring and how they can shut these apostles up. And now they're getting word that amongst their ranks, men are repenting and trusting in this Christ in whom they crucified. That there's a stir amongst the high priests that this Jesus whom these men are trying to put the blood on our hands, who we know we killed, that there's some in our ranks that are turning and repenting and trusting in this Christ. Dear saints, that is a testament to the Spirit of God being able to break any ground in which He pleases to break. Amen. Those same men who killed the Lord Jesus Christ now stand before Him sanctified, justified, cleansed of all their sin, cleansed of the murder of God. Can you believe it, dear saints? That such were some of you. That God would forgive those who crucified Him. You, this day, if you were in Christ, your hands were bloody and now they're clean. Your throat spoke out, crucify Him, and now today it says glorify Him. That is the power of of the ministry of the word. That is the power of the gospel going forth and these men proclaiming it boldly that even the priests who crucified him came to know him. So as we conclude, I want to give us one final point of application. It is this, dear saints, to be on the lookout of how you can serve others within the body. As we are growing in our love for one another, we will see when needs arise. I think one of the greatest joys I have here at this body is that we meet almost three times a week. We get to be with almost everyone here three times a week. And so if you have neglect, you have many opportunities to bring those neglects before those around you. It is in the closeness of gathering that we see the needs that may arise. It's in the closeness of gathering that those needs that some of us might want to keep secret are then brought forth to the light. It is in our closeness of fellowship that we truly see the love and care that someone might need in that direct moment. If we deny that fellowship, saints, we deny the work of the body, we deny the work of Christ, 
We deny ourselves. And so I, 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 I give you this commendation to seek fellowship as much as you can. Don't be satisfied with one day of the week. There's so much joy to be had when we gather together. And so seek fellowship because in that fellowship you'll see how you can serve others or let your needs be made known. And so in this time, as we know, we have a tremendous opportunity before us as we seek to come alongside the Imtaj family. So I commit to you, dear saints, all of you gathered here today, minister to this family. Pray for this family. Daily intercede on their behalf. Provide for them, whether it's financial, whether it's food, in any way that you're capable, provide for them. Whatever it may be, let us sacrifice for this family. I promise you, there are so many things we could sacrifice today that would be a provision for this family. Consider not your harvest. Consider not the sheaf that falls by the wayside that you turn back to grab. Consider not your own delight and pleasure, but sacrifice. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, but for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. And so what we have, saints, is a family who is in great need. And what we have here, dear saints, is a body who should be ready to give to those needs. I pray that we would be. And we have already. We have desired that already. But we've been given this example here. What one lacks, we all can fill the void. We all can come and, and, and give what we can to them to fill that void. Oh, that we would see this family's trial as a burden for us to bear, as an opportunity for us to sacrifice for the well-being of others that we would all daily intercede on their behalf, that we would all daily seek in some way that we can minister. So I give you this one commission, and there might be others, but at this moment, every day pray for them, please. Intercede before the mercy seat of God on behalf of them. And as I say those things, I say them with joy because I know you, dear saints, will do those. You will, with eager anticipation, seek any way that you can fulfill a need. And so it's joy that I give you that commitment. It's with joy that I say these things. So may we love and honor this family well and do so to the honor and glory of Christ. Let us pray.